Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Um, I work in English education. I went to school for a long, long time because I like to read. And I thought I was going to be a college professor, but I ended up working in English education. And the company that I work for develops practice test questions that help students develop their skills in math and social studies, science, English. And, for example, many state tests your children will take if they're in public schools will have questions about the central idea of a passage or how does the author develop this theme or how do they use an illustration to convey a specific point of view. So the other day, one of my colleagues called me and she said she wanted my opinion about a text. She was working on some practice questions for ninth graders and she came across this passage and she was concerned because it was a passage that recounted the exodus from Egypt. The company that I work for is not a religious company. It's it's secular, not faith-based at all. But sometimes it is appropriate to use religious texts to test certain things. Um, Metaphor, theme... But she was concerned with what the industry calls bias and sensitivity issues. Like, you don't talk about religion unless it's absolutely necessary because it might upset students. And not everyone believes the same thing. So she wanted to show me this passage about the Exodus, and she wanted me to look at the way that a question that went with it was framed. And it went something like this. Which sentence from the text supports the idea that that God told Moses to lead the Israelites? So her concern was that the way the question was framed, it implied that those events were true. And I asked her, well, do you think that this text should be categorized as fiction? And she didn't answer that. She said, I don't like anything that's religious being presented as if it were true. She knows what I believe. Um, So the root of her question was whether the text should be treated in the same way that we would treat the Declaration of Independence, which we know is factual, or should we treat it in the way that we would treat something like Charles Dickens? And in her mind, the text wasn't true, and so we shouldn't be treating it as informational text. So I knew my own bias, (laughs) being a Christian, and I have no problem believing that the Exodus is true, and so I was trying to respect where she was coming from, so I just said, you have to go and take it to somebody above us because this is a bigger issue that you're talking about. And I didn't think my answers would satisfy her. Because in my mind, when I look at the Exodus, I see this marvelous picture of divine grace. Like, so happy it's there in the test for the students to read. But she did not believe it was true, and so we shouldn't be treating it as informational texts. Similarly, we could say that understanding and believing what is true is at the heart of the struggle of the Hebrews, for those Jewish Christians that the author is writing to. Remember in chapter 3 of Hebrews how the apostle warned his audience, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts, is in the rebellion. To fully understand Hebrews, we have to endeavor to enter into a cyclical world of Jewish history, where the beginning of every year is marked by the Passover, that feast that recalled Israel's exodus from Egypt. One would think that to be a child of Israel would be to live with a great sense of having been rescued. And it's astonishing to think about that sort of rescue that happened thousands of years ago and the miraculous nature of it. How God led the Israelites with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and how he parted a body of water so that the Israelites could cross on dry land. Then to see that same body of water wash over the army that pursued them and how God fed the Israelites with bread from heaven, you would think that, that those things would stay with you. We understand here today this part of the Israelites' history, and we know how very quickly they, they grumbled against God and complained. In the midst of signs and wonder, the people found it very hard to believe that God was leading them someplace good. So it was there in the desert that God gave his laws to Israel, Moses says they were written with the finger of God on tablets of stone. Even as Moses was bringing this divine revelation to the Israelites, the Israelites were creating a golden calf because Moses had disappeared and they didn't know when he was coming back. And that they didn't know the timeline, they didn't like waiting, and so they started to go back. They wanted to create a different God. The law that Moses was bringing them was imbued with God's being. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So the first laws that God gave were relational to God. And the the other laws that God gave were relational to others. There's no lying, no stealing, no adultery, no murder. None of those things were permissible. The law... It was a mirror, as Calvin says, of the heart's inclination to do the opposite of what the heart, the law is telling you to do. Um, it's our inclination to go whoring after other gods, to lie, to cheat, to steal, to murder, and to hate God. Among the laws that God gave Israel were the commands to observe certain feasts, to practice certain rituals, and after receiving the law, Moses tells us in Exodus 24-7 that the people said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. As we know, Israel wasn't obedient. They asked for that golden calf, and Moses despaired of leading people like this. Yet their faithful God called Moses again to receive the law. And the account of the law being given in Deuteronomy clearly conveys that the law was given in love. As Moses told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 10, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all people as you are this day. And the proper response to God, Moses says, is to love the Lord your God and to keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider the discipline of your Lord, the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all this land. 
all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses, to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in this wilderness until you came to this place. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. So all of this is still early days in Jewish history. There was a long struggle to obtain the land of promise, a long struggle to keep it, a struggle to keep out foreign gods. Then there were the days of the judges, the days of the kings, the days of the prophets, and ultimately the days of exile from the land that God had given Israel. All their losses came down to the curses that fell upon idolatrous, adulterous hearts. In the scripture that we studied for today, we see that the author of Hebrews points back to a promise made to the Judeans and Israelites in exile. And before we look at today's text, let's consider the whole context of what we're learning as we study Hebrews. The author exhorts his hearers to look back to the far past, to the promises that God made to Abraham and Moses, because the author argues that all the promises God made were fulfilled in the very recent past in the person of Jesus Christ in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation at God's right hand. And implicit in these chapters that we've studied so far, there are answers to the question, who is Jesus? The text is a proclamation that he is God's son and the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise of rest and redemption. And the author uses the unbelief of the Israelites who were delivered out of Egypt and yet did not believe as a warning for the contemporary Christians of Israel. Of Hebrews. Remember at the beginning of Hebrews, the author says, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And as we have seen, the Son is the founder of our salvation. And he is better than Moses and all the Levitical high priests. Um, I think it would be a natural question for anybody Today, would say, oh, my word, we get it. He's better. We understand this. But it's being repeated because our hearts are hard. And you need to hear it. If God repeats something, you need to hear it. He's going to repeat the Jeremiah text again later in Hebrews. So we know that Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant than the one that was given to Moses. If the Hebrews as Christians believed in Jesus... Why would the author continue to build this case that Jesus is better than the Old Covenant? Because as the Israelites proved over and over, that no matter what you see with your eyes or hear with your ears, no matter what you profess to believe or swear to obey, there's always a danger of turning back to something that is inferior to a merciful and faithful high priest, even if he's already proved that he loves you. And the the Hebrews needed the exhortation not to turn back. You could ask, why would you not be faithful and submissive to someone and to something that you knew was true? Why would you not obey a God who delivered you? You wouldn't obey because you couldn't do it. The power is not in your heart. And no human has ever had that power in themselves. So it brings us to the text for today, which is mostly that quotation from Jeremiah 31. The context is the Babylonian exile, and the author of our study mentions 
the parallels between the Jews and the southern kingdom of Judah in Jeremiah's time, where the remaining Jews in the land were deported by the Babylonians, um, and their temple, that the one that had been built by King Solomon, was also destroyed by the Babylonians. The Jewish exile that happened during Jeremiah's time did not come without a warning. God had seen their covenant infidelity and their pursuit of strange God, and yet in love, God sent the prophet Jeremiah to call them to repentance. But they would not turn to God and obey him. And so they were cursed and carried away. The Jews in the first century Palestine, they would also lose their temple. After war and famine, they lost it to the Romans, who burned and destroyed the temple, while, according to the historian Josephus, the Jews cried in horror. The point of providing all this context is to highlight what the Hebrews, what Hebrew says over and over. Jesus is better than all of this that came before. Last week we read that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant and that a new covenant was necessary because the old one was not faultless. The old covenant, like the new, came purely from divine initiative. It was God condescending to man, but the fault of the old covenant was in man. As Jeremiah says, he's quoting the Lord, they did not continue in my covenant. And in giving the covenant, God was not setting Israel in a trap and invoking irrational promises from them. It was never in their hearts to be faithful to him. It's not in ours to duly love and obey God. The old covenant was faulty because God made it with sinful people. The fault was never with God. In the new covenant foretold by Jeremiah, God promised to put his laws into Israel's minds and write them on their hearts, just as God wrote the commandments given to Moses on tablets of stone with his own hand. He can make the same permanent mark, writing with his finger, on the human heart and mind. When God says, I will put my laws into their minds, this is, a declaration of not, this is not a declaration of force, but one of gift that he will bestow his laws in grace. You know, that I will put my laws, that, that verb is the same verb in the Lord's Prayer when we say, give us this day our daily bread. Bestow to us, Lord. So God is saying he'll bestow and give this as a gift. The promise does not end there. For God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. God had promised to be the God of Israel. He offered intimate relationship, but it was ultimately rejected. They were powerless to love and obey without internal change. The externals of the old covenant could not induce them to obedience. In his quotation from Jeremiah, it's important to understand the author, when he's repeating Jeremiah and saying, I will, God is saying, I will, that I will speaks of a future time and it the covenant, the new covenant to come, but the way that that verb is used is a, like not someplace off in the future, but when he does it, it will be continuous. I will be their God. They will be my people. It will be ongoing, like now in the present. In the new covenant, something miraculous though unseen, would take place. God would give his children the power to remain in him. The old covenant depended on people's ability to continue in obedience, and as we've seen, external obedience and perfection in law-keeping was not attainable. 
And the promise of God does not end there. God says that all the house of Israel would have relationship with him, that people from the least to the greatest would know him, that relationship with God would not be grounded on religious elitism. And the promise does not end there. God says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Of the New Covenant, William Lane says that its central affirmation is the pledge of the presence of the law in the hearts of believers as the gift of God. The mention of such gift occurs nowhere else in the Old Testament. The quality of newness intrinsic in the New Covenant consists in the new manner of presenting God's law and not newness of content. The people of God will be inwardly established in the law and knowledge of the Lord. The emphasis falls on the interior quality of the human response to God through the new covenant. So the author of Hebrews looks back to Jeremiah because the truth is right in front of the Hebrews' eyes. The apostle proclaims the arrival of the new covenant in the person of Jesus Christ in contrast to an imperfect, powerless, and obsolete covenant. The old covenant, as we know, was mediated by men, but the new covenant is mediated by the Son of God. His ministry is much better than the old, and it is enacted on a promise of assurance and total total forgiveness. Because he has come, the author of Hebrews is saying, it is time for the Jews to let go of what is becoming obsolete and growing old and ready to vanish away. The Old Covenant rituals, Raymond Brown says, have all been superseded by Christ. The intention of God's covenant with his people in the old and the new was always relationship, and this relationship is realized in Jesus Christ. And in our time, it's hard to appreciate how difficult this was for the Jews to let go of the old, where this participation in rituals has to be let go, and you have to embrace something wholly new in putting your faith in Jesus Christ. In hindsight, we can see the tensions between the old and the new, the mosaic and the messianic, the internal and the external. And we know that nobody had the power to keep the law perfectly. But if the Hebrews were honest about their national history, It was largely one of covenant breaking and the proclivity to turn away from God. And we should never look at the Hebrews disparagingly or the Jews and say, well, there they go again. Because we can't say we would have done anything differently. However, the author of Hebrews is saying, Christ the Son has come. He has laid down his life. He has been exalted at God's right hand. And he stands between sinful man and God. God has promised to make you a covenant keeper by placing his spirit and his word in you so that you will follow him by faith. The apostle wants the Hebrews to see themselves as people of the new covenant, something permanent, something established in eternity. The old covenant has performed its function and has given way to Christ. We are, though not though we are not Jews, beneficiary of these same promises, that God will be our God, that he will write his law in his hearts, and that he will be merciful and remember our many sins no more. Think for a moment of the worst thing that you have ever done. 
If you are in Christ, it is not held against you. Think of the many trespasses that you commit against others. Think of the idols that you have in your heart. If you are in Christ, it is not held against you. We're still obligated to obey God's moral law, even though we are covered by Christ. There's no grace-free pass just to go on sinning. But we still have to obey. Nothing about God, the God who made the old covenant, and the God who made the new covenant, nothing about that God has changed. He still requires obedience. But we know, because God has opened our eyes, and this is what the author of Hebrews desires for the people he's writing to, we know that we could never obey God without his grace. And even with God's law in our hearts, we face a continual struggle here against sin. The Westminster Confession states that sanctification is yet imperfect in this life. It's not talking about the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus is perfect, but our becoming like him is a process. There abides in us some remnants of corruption, and there arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the confession says. The the spirit, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But here we also have the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ. And as we live, we grow in grace. The law of the spirit of God gives us life. We love Christ because he first loved us. We love others because a lover lives in us. It is God, the apostle Paul says, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If anything, I think when we look back at what God has promised to give Israel in the new covenant, we should see a very large picture of grace in his divine initiative God bestowed his redemptive love on Israel, and he has also done the same for us. And looking forward, we should have an unwavering hope that God will do what he says he will do, because it is impossible for him to lie. He has sworn by himself that he will keep his promises. Because of Jesus, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can be sure of God's promises and certain that everything he has said is true. We need to remind ourselves of this constantly so we do not harden our hearts in unbelief. Let's pray. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son. And I pray, Lord, that your word would not return void, that you would change us in our study of Hebrews. And Lord, I also lift up, we all lift up Ken and Karen McCarty today. Um, We ask that you would cover them with your grace as um, Ken receives ongoing treatment for cancer. And Father, I pray that you would bless the, the people here who watch the children and that you would give all the moms here grace today as they go home with their kids. And we ask that you would be with us this day 
and continue to remind us of the truth of who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.